This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. The Jason Cavendish Experience is sponsored and brought to you by Cavendish HR. At Cavendish HR, we deliver HR to companies with 49 or fewer people while automating HR products and services while providing you access to a dedicated HR business partner. Here at Cavendish HR, we're currently providing employee handbooks and HR policies at no cost to companies with 49 or fewer people in the city of Seattle. Hello, and welcome to Jason Kavnick's Experience. I'm your host, Jason Kavnick. Our guest, guest today is Kathy Basilian. Kathy, thanks for being here today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you, Jason. So, start off with what I, might be a softball question. So, you know, you do a lot, right? You're, you're in charge of Eastern Seals, the state of Washington. I'm sure you have family, friends, social obligations. You're giving a lot of yourself. But how do you make sure, and I think, that's one thing I'm, I'm bad at, and I think a lot of people are bad too. How do you make sure you take care of yourself, like both mentally and physically? Well, that's a great uh, road to look down because you're right. I don't think about it very often. I'm just a go, go, go. I have learned, though, probably the hard way that you have to ask for help and you have to let people help. Uh, someone explained to me once I had had, had knee surgery and I didn't recover right. It, everything kind of went sideways. And I developed a fear of walking. Uh, my brain didn't realize that my legs were capable of walking and I had this anxiety. It was super strange, came out of the blue and uh, I couldn't really do anything. I was paralyzed, if you will. And someone, um, a childhood friend from fourth grade called me and she said, Kathy, do you realize that what you're doing? You're shutting people out who get joy from helping. You're denying them the privilege of doing something that brings them joy, and that is to help you. And that changed my whole outlook on uh, asking for help, that it's not needy. It's actually a sign of strength, and you're letting other people do something that brings them joy. So I've learned to ask for help. So lack, for lack of a better term, that's something I suck at too, right? Like, I'm always like, how can I help you? But when people ask me, for like, what, I need, what do you need from me? I'm always like, get, I get brain lock or like, you know, like brain freeze, right? Because what, what do I need help with, right? So how do you help, how do you recommend people like me do a better job of like receiving help? Well, I think the first thing is, is maybe to flip it, you know, like I just said, and realize that you're doing them a favor by letting them help you. Uh, it's not a burden to them. It's actually something they enjoy. And they're going to be uncomfortable if you tell them, no, you can't help me. So if you think of it that way, you're helping them by letting them help you out. And, uh, and I make a list now. I make a list of like low-hanging fruit. If somebody says, can I help you? I'm like, yeah, you know, you want to come over and help me rake my leaves in my yard? Or, um, you know, I make a list so that I have ready answers for them. That's nice. And uh, do you consider yourself a professional or amateur saxophone player? Oh, my gosh. Um, wasn't sure you would touch on that one. I am more of an amateur. I would say semi-pro. Semi-pro. I have made money playing. But I don't play to make money. I play because it's stress relieving, it's fun, it's community. I, I just love to make music. And how long have you been doing it? Like when did you get started? 
Well, I actually picked up a saxophone when I was nine and uh, played for many years, played through high school. I was such a band geek. In fact, in high school, my senior year, I had five band classes and an English class uh, just for balance, I guess. But uh, I was a, a complete band geek. But then I went into college and to major in music, the instrumental music, you have to sing. You have to take ear training and you have to be able to carry a tune. I couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. So I decided I wasn't going to major in music. And I went through college, played a little bit in college in jazz band and uh, some community bands. And, and then I found the love of my life and he proposed. And as I was graduating from college, we wanted to get married and go on a honeymoon. And I sold my prize saxophone. That no. my, Yeah. My parents had scrimped and saved to buy top of the line Selmer saxophone. And I sold it so we could go to Lake Tahoe for our honeymoon. You must have really loved that guy. They yeah. give up your saxophone. Well, you know, I had gotten to where I wasn't playing it much. Okay. And I, I didn't really think it was going to be part of my life anymore. And so for 20 years, it wasn't. I, had, I got married. I had babies. I started my career. And I kept looking for hobbies. I kept knowing something was missing in my life. But I didn't really know what it was. And my husband and I tried to do things together. We tried golf. No, not working for me. Um, I, I used a lot of four-letter words on the golf course. And but that's, that's part of golf, right? Everyone, that's, uh, you, you fit in perfectly. <laughs> okay, well, there you go. Uh, and so we looked at some other things. I can't do arts and crafts. I mean, nothing was working for me hobby-wise. And then we were at an Oktoberfest and had had, I don't know how many beers. Uh, and uh, there was a community band playing Oompa Loompa music. And my husband elbowed me and said, go ask him how you join. This was 20 years after I had touched a horn. And it worked. And I joined that community band. And then I uh, was asked to be in a semi-pro swing band. And now I'm in a big band. Um, you know, I play in, gosh, three to five musical groups uh, every week or two. So it's, it's back. It's part of my life. We're going to further cheers. Thanks for doing this. Oh, yeah. Cheers, indeed. So, I have a good friend. His son is like the one of the top saxophone, saxophone players in Seattle. Like he's played in Europe, New York City. So I, so I remind me to connect you with him, right? He plays like all these little bands everywhere, you know. I think he's actually moving to New York City in a couple of months. He got a gig there or something, right? Playing saxophone full time. Wow. So I, I got to start connecting with him. I would love to connect. Very cool. Yeah. So, Playing a saxophone, right? It's, you know, I, I, my first member of saxophone was Bill Clinton back in the day when on the, when one of the TV show played a saxophone, right? And now Beyonce is on the Verizon commercial, you know, playing the saxophone, right? It's like saxophone always been like, you know, the quote unquote sexy instrument, so to speak, right? Was that what drew you to it? Or you just like, like, why did you pick the saxophone versus everything else? Oh, I wish it was a cool story like sexy. Uh, it's not. So... I've, I've always liked music. And when I was seven, I asked my dad if I could learn an instrument. And I'm, you know, I'm pretty old, Jason. So my dad was into Lawrence Welk and polkas. And, uh, so random thought, one of my fondest memories of being a kid. So I used to go, my, I lived with my grandparents my first five years of life. It's been similar. Every day, my grandmother watched Lawrence Welk for an hour, right? <laughs> and Lawrence Welk is engraved with me. Like, no one can ever say anything about a Lawrence Welk, the band, right? Like, to me, if you say something about it, those people, you, those are fighting awards, right? It's true. It's true. They're, uh, they're the gold standard for uh, music back then anyway. And that was my dad's thing. And my sister and I would put on little slips and we would run around and poke around the house 
for Lawrence Welk. And so when I said I wanted to play something, uh, my dad didn't have to think twice. He's like, you're playing the accordion. And he went out and bought me an accordion. And I'm, I was a tiny little thing and it's bigger than I am. And you have to strap it on and it's not cool. It's not a cool instrument. Everyone else is learning piano and guitar and I'm learning accordion. But I did it for dad, right? In hindsight, I'm glad I did it because I learned to read music, both treble clef and bass clef. Uh, I, I learned that I love to make music, but boy, did I hate that instrument. Hated it. And I had this teacher who was old and smelled funny and just the whole experience was awful. And so a couple of years later, um, I, I went to my dad and, and, I, and my mom and I said, um, I really want to do a different instrument. And my dad said, okay, saxophone. Okay. It I mean, looked, just, just like that, like no hesitation, just saxophone. No hesitation. I don't know why he played fiddle. Um, so I don't know why he pulled these instruments out like that, but he decided that's what I was going to do. Love my dad, trusted him. Anything would have been better than the accordion. So did your dad have like a musical background? Um, just the fiddle. Okay. And I, his sisters played some instruments, okay. but, um, nothing serious. Uh, and so I, I started taking lessons on the sax and, um, loved it. Loved it. Didn't want to give it up like the accordion. And you play like a few bands. You, 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 belong, you belong to a few bands in our, right? I do. I'm in a community concert band. I'm in a big band that plays like, you know, old time uh, swing music and, and more popular stuff, a little bit of rock. And then I'm in a, um, I was in a, a semi-pro swing band that played quite a few gigs. And I, I just had too much going on. So I've recently stepped back from that one. And then I'm in a sax quartet, which is a lot of fun. So all these like just hobbies you're doing, you get, you make money off these things or, or just basically a hobby? Uh, some of them pay a few bucks, but basically a hobby. Hobby. Okay. Yeah. And like, what makes a good band, right? Cause like you always hear bands getting together, breaking up, like personality conflicts. Like what makes a band like kind of like click, so to speak, have good chemistry? I think chemistry is the key. Uh, communication for sure. You know, I've been in some bands that haven't worked out and some that have, uh, and the ones that do communicate really well. No egos helps. And that's, you're talking musicians, you know, they kind of go together. <laughs> so, uh, so keeping the egos at check, trying to keep it fun. When it becomes about the gig or about the paycheck, that's when people get too serious. What's the biggest amount of people you've played in front of? Oh, gosh, several hundred, probably. Yeah. Yeah, three, four hundred. I've, I've played some weddings. As you approach, like, suppose you have, like, you have two gigs. One, you know, it's going to be 500 people. Other knows only be ten people. Is your approach the same to each gig, or you approach it differently based on the number of people there? My approach is uh, about the music more than the people. So if it's going to be a really cool set with tunes that I dig and I have a few solos, I don't care if there are two people in the room. Uh, if it's a, a set list that I'm playing just because I was told to, and we're getting paid to play it, and it's a bunch of long tones and boring rests and things. Uh, I don't care if there are 500 people in the room. That's not a fun gig. So it's really about the music. Is there a place as a musician, is this place like it's on your bucket list? Like I wish you could play like Madison Square Garden or like some big amphitheater. Uh, sure. I'd like to play. I'd like to play for a big crowd that's, that's there for the music and it really enjoys the genre. Uh, it wouldn't have to be Madison Square Garden. Okay. Maybe a little smaller. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so next, you're the president of the Rotary Club in Silverdale, correct? I am, yeah. So I'm probably getting blasted for this. I'm probably killed, but 
whenever I think Rotary Club, I think like, you know, people like about to go into the senior citizen home, like people have been retired, you know, I know that's not like the case, right? But like, Jason, how do you like overcome that perception and get more young people to join, so to speak? I'm not, of course, not saying I'm young. I'm like probably close to your age and young, but like, I think that's a lot of people's perception, unfortunately. It is. It is a perception. And Rotary is doing a whole lot to try to change that. So Rotary is an international organization. We have a million and a half members. Uh, the cool thing I like about Rotary is you're a Rotarian in your local club, and then you're a Rotarian anywhere you go in the world. I went to a Rotary meeting without asking. I just walked in in Ireland when I was on vacation. And it was like family. That had you know? to be so cool. So cool. They're like, Oh yeah, Kathy, you're a Rotarian. Come on in, have lunch with us. Uh, so you have family all over the world. And yes, uh, clubs tend to skew older. Uh, and, you know, some people were, over the last, gosh, 20 years, um, service clubs weren't cool anymore. And so there's been a lot to change that. There's um, clubs now in colleges and high schools called Rotaract and Interact, and they're getting kids started young to realize that service to your community, which is Rotary, service above self, is cool. And there's a way to do it and adapt to your style. Uh, they've also dropped a lot of the, the secret handshake kind of stuff. You know, I think about the Flintstones <laughs> and uh, the yeah. Grand Poobah yeah, and yeah. all of that. Rotary had some of that stuff. I did not know that. And they're dropping some of that. So there's no attendance requirement anymore. The dues are lower. Um, we're trying to switch things up. You know, not all clubs meet every week anymore. Trying to make it um, more user-friendly for today's audience. But how do you, like, get younger people make more user-friendly but still keep your core beliefs, core values, right? Let me ask you, I don't want to change everything to, to kind of entice your audience. You need, you need to keep your traditional stuff going on still, right? That, absolutely. So we have the four-way test, and that's our, our moral compass. Um, is it the truth? Is it fair to all concerned? Will it build goodwill and better friendships? And will, be, will it be beneficial to all concerned? I think all ages can relate to that. So if someone is 18 or someone is 88, if they can relate to that and they can buy into the fact that we're going to be ethical, we're going to be professional business people, we're going to enjoy each other, and we're going to serve the community and the world, I think we can find a place for them in our Rotary Club. But we have to listen to them. When they say, hey, every Thursday at noon doesn't work for me, I can't do that, or I want to zoom into your meeting instead of walk into your meeting, we need to hear that. And we've got to be more flexible and adaptable. Some clubs are more flexible than others. Um, but the ones that are, they're, they're starting to grow. I know on the Army side, the VFW had a big problem with that. So the VFW had a, like a stereotype of being like old white males over 50 Vietnam War eras, right? Yep. And none of the like veterans from the Iraq or Afghanistan wanted to, wanted to join them because you know, it was like, it's an old white man talking about stuff happened 20 years ago, right? As some other... Some clubs are fixing that some are, so I think that's a challenge that VFW is having. Yeah, it's okay. really similar. Yeah. Yeah, we just have to stay relevant. And so how does one become a Rotary Club member? Do they have to be recommended by someone? Is the application process? Fees they have to pay? Yes, to all of the above, but it depends on the club. Some clubs make it really easy and casual, and they, you can join right away or take your time. Um, some clubs have more protocol. Uh, we've dropped, so the Rotary Club of Silverdale, we've dropped a whole lot of that protocol. We want to be welcoming. We want to be easy. Come on in and, and come to a few meetings as a guest with no pressure and no fees. Uh, and then see if you like it, kick our tires a little bit. And then we'll start, you know, through the membership process. You no, know, and obviously you shouldn't join an organization like Rotary Club. To, like I shouldn't, 
say I want to join me and ask, what do I get out of this, right? Because you don't you know, want to be, give, be a service, all that kind of stuff. But having said that, what do members get out of it? Like, do they, they get like, like, like networking stuff, like business deals, uh, extensive community? Like, how does that work? Sure. They, we promote networking. We, we, we tell people, don't feel guilty about it. Uh, come in and, and wear your name tag. It has your classification on it. It tells us, you know, a little bit about you. Uh, we have you get up and give a speech about you and your business. Uh, and if, if you're able to market your wares a little bit, um, that's fine. Um, everybody gets that you've got a day job, right? But we're different from like, say, a chamber of commerce, where that's all you do. You're only there to network. We're here to serve the community. And so service comes self, comes first, service to self. Um, so you, you serve your community, you serve internationally, and then you serve your occupation uh, and get your family involved. So we try to balance it for sure, uh, but it, no one should be ashamed of networking and, and trying to better their business through Rotary. That's how it started, really. Yeah, so what, what's your advice in networking? Like for myself, right, I'm actually an introvert, right? And like I do the podcast, and I actually love putting on events, right? But I love putting on events, but if I go to an event, I suck at networking, right? So what, what do you advise to people like me who like kind of suck at it? Well, you got your bourbon, Jason. That's, that's the first thing, yeah. you know. Uh, a, a lot of Rotarians uh, tend to drink, so a lot of our socials have alcohol. <laughs> uh, it kind of loosens everybody up, makes networking a bit easier. Um, uh, but also, uh, gosh, you know, just come armed with some questions to ask people. You know, people like to open up, talk about themselves a little bit. Uh, and then once you get the conversation going, it's really easy. Um, Rotarians are are a social bunch and they recognize when people are uncomfortable. They're pretty good at, at lightening the mood. Yeah. So how do you do this? Like as president of your Rotary Club, right? Every organization I've been into, it seems like there's certain people like start giving too much, right? That makes any sense, right? They, what they, do you mean? Like they volunteer, like be on every committee. Oh. They volunteer to do everything. How do you make sure, hey, hey, Jason, like, you know, I appreciate what you're doing, but you might want to scale back some, right? How do you make sure, make sure people have that balance? I'm afraid you might be describing me first off, Jason. <laughs> um, that is a good point. Uh, there are people that, that try to do everything, and it causes a couple problems. First off, they burn out, and you don't want that. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And then they, they might be taking a spot that someone else wanted, and then they're not stepping up because it's already filled. Uh, so, there, you know, there's, there are conversations that you have. That's part of being presidents, having some one-on-one -on -one conversations about uh, what difference do you really want to make in Rotary is a question I ask a lot. And let me help you focus on that. Uh, so that seems to work. And like, do different Rotary clubs charge different amounts of fees to join? Or is it the same across the board? It's not the same. Uh, there are some basic fees that are sa the same. We have to pay dues to Rotary International. We have to pay dues to our district. But then each club adds uh, a bit of fee on top, depending on what they need in their club. So. Uh, it varies a bit. And how many members do you have right now? We have 48 members in the Silverdale Rotary Club. Like, is your, like, how long is the term as president? Is it until, until you resign it or is it like, is like two-year term or how does that work? It's supposed to be a one-year term. Okay. And I bucked the system and went two years okay. um, for a variety of reasons. It's um, actually becoming more common that a president is there for two years. Gosh, it takes you six, eight months just to learn what you're doing. Yeah. And by the time it's over, you're, you feel like you're just getting started. So um, I'm coming toward the end of my second year. So I've been doing this for a little bit. 
and two years feels about right. Yeah. And like, how do you, how do you pick a replacement? Is that is like an election for the members or you nominate someone? They're nominated early on. So there's a pipeline, there's a president nominee, there's a president elect, there's a president. So uh, when I'm done, there's already somebody trained and ready to go uh, called the president elect. So for your two years, tell us something that you, you, you did that you're proud of. And then tell us something that you wish you would have done that, that this couldn't get around to it for whatever reason. Definitely the thing I'm most proud of is I physically moved where we meet. So our club met at, uh, at a golf and country club. And it wasn't even in Silverdale. We're the Silverdale Rotary Club. <laughs> it was in Bremerton. Uh, and it was um, old school. It's a golf and country club. So, you know, you walk in and there are stairs. It's not even accessible. And the people are nice and the food was good. The price was very high for lunch. I had uh, Rotarians who wouldn't eat because they couldn't afford to spend that much money on lunch once a week. Um, so there were things that were making it very exclusive. And my whole mantra since before I even became president was I want a welcoming club. I want to open it up. I want younger members. I want people that aren't necessarily the president of something. We need a diverse group. Well, you're not going to get a diverse group at the country club that's not in the city where you're supposed to be, and they can't get up the stairs. So I moved us. I moved us to the Kitsap Mall. So now we're in community. It's accessible. People walk by shopping and see our sign and ask who we are and come on in. We're like, come on in. Come be a guest at our meeting. We want to know who you are. Come see who we are. And it's really changed the vibe. And I think it's what you talked about. I think we're going to be able to go from an older, exclusive club to a younger, more diverse, inclusive club. Now, is a Rotary Club only for business owners? Or is there anyone? Like, do you focus on a certain economic demographic group? or like It, it used to be. So it used to be that you had to be like the only real estate agent in the club or the only doctor or the only banker so that you didn't have competition when you were networking your wares, right? Uh, and you had to be the head of, it, of that company. Uh, that is not true anymore. Anyone can be a Rotarian. You have to have a heart for service. You have to believe in the structure of the club. It has to work for you. And then you have to commit and, and pay the dues and everything else that goes with committing. Anyone can be a Rotarian now. And that was not the case even just a few years ago. So I don't know if this still happens, but back in the day, when the president of the United States left office, he would leave like a nice letter for the incoming president saying, you know, welcome to the job and like all this kind of stuff. If you were to leave a letter to your, to your person taking your place, what would be in that letter? Well, that person's name is Glenn and he's amazing. And I would, uh, I probably will leave this letter and I would First say, Glenn, thank you so much for having the courage and the uh, ability to step up and, and to do this. Uh, I know, Glenn, that you did this earlier than you wanted to. You had a plan, and I put a wrench in it by asking you to step up quickly. Uh, and I really appreciate you. And you're going to do a dynamite job. Just go with your heart and um, make everyone feel welcome and lean on me anytime. And how does this work, right? Because obviously, like, you'll still be a member of the club, right? You still go to meetings, I'm guessing. Correct. So how do you make sure people don't go to you all the time? Hey, Kathy, you know, and, and like, overlook Glenn, right? How do you make, make that balance? That makes any sense. 
Well, it's already, we're already starting that transition. So on July 1st, I won't be the president anymore. But even right now, we're starting to spin some things off. Okay. Uh, like I can't attend a meeting this Thursday, so I'm having Glenn run it. Okay. So we're doing a few things to to make that transition better. Is there a competition between like Rotary clubs across the world, like to be the best Rotary club or best this, or like is there any kind of competition like that? Like, like do you get like a plaque if your uh, membership increase more than other people, things like that? There are awards. Uh, most clubs aren't doing what they're doing for the awards. They're just trying to sustain and grow. Uh, but there is an award system and there's a Rotary magazine you can get mentioned in. Uh, I've been to three international conventions, which are so cool. We're talking 25 to 50,000 people at these conventions uh, and people from all over the world. And the last one I went to was in Australia and it was just last year. Uh, super cool. And um, no, you know, there's not much ego um, about how big your club is or what you're achieving. Most clubs want to really help other clubs achieve. Yeah. So before we move on, anything else about the Rotary Club you want to talk about? Uh, I look just that I love Rotary and I think everybody should check it out. All right. Thank you. So next, uh, I found this on the internet. I don't know how old it is, but it actually says almost two years ago, Comcast awarded Eastwood Seals $75,000 in some kind of grant for a gateway adult service facility in Bremerton. Can you talk about that and how that came about? The, uh, our relationship with Comcast goes way back. Comcast has been an amazing partner with Easter Seals Washington uh, and with other affiliates throughout the nation. And we have this adult services program in Bremerton that is very unique. It's the only one for miles and miles. And it serves adults. Uh, a, a lot of times the adults have a developmental disability, but we're also starting to serve a lot more adults who have dementia or other uh, disabilities due to aging. And so they come in the morning and they get nutrition and they get exercise and we have a registered nurse monitoring their health. And it's a safe place for them to be while their families are able to get a job or uh, take care of themselves. And it's a wonderful program that I'm really proud of. What we weren't doing though, is we weren't really giving people stretch stretch goals and equipment and uh, skills. And I wanted to infuse that into their day. So I was talking with our Comcast partners and they said, well, we've got another grant available. How can we really make a difference for you? And I said, how about one of those cool lift zone computer labs you've got going on? And we put it in at Gateway Adult Services in Bremerton. We transform a wing of the building and it becomes this high tech assistive technology lab. And they loved it and we loved it and it happened. Uh, so now these adults come in and they still get nutrition and healthcare and exercise and they're learning what a computer is and they're getting on Facebook and they're meeting people electronically and they're having this enhanced quality of life that only crossing that digital divide will do for you. And I'm super proud of it. And what's like the, the age of these people? Like they're like, what's like, like the average age? It really varies. We have some younger adults that are in their 20s. I would say mostly, though, it's an older crowd, probably age 55 and up. So most of them being 55 and up, did you or Comcast have to do like any training on them, any training, like tech training or whatever? Like this is how the computer works, this is how you do this? Or 
Yeah, we're doing a lot of digital literacy training, very individualized. So we'll do a pretest to see what they know and what they don't know. And then we individualize the uh, instruction from there. Uh, also, a lot of people, I mean, we're serving people with disabilities. So a lot of them can't use the regular equipment that you and I use. So they, they might need a mouse that attaches to their forehead instead of one they move with their hand or a special keyboard. So we uh, try out a, a bunch of toys, if you will, assistive technology and see what works. We, we just put in the back room of this lab a virtual reality area. And so you should see people strap on those headsets and just enter another reality. Very cool. So speaking of that, another person I connected with, the, actually was on my podcast last Saturday, a guy named David Robichaud. Yes, he, he has an ARVR company where he teaches like junior high kids how to use ARVR. Oh, cool. So I'm, I'm connected with him too. They're yeah. just starting out too, yeah, doing all kind of stuff. So totally off subject, right? This on social media the other day where this, um, I think it was a TikTok or whatever, where this person put on their, on their like video, my mom's first time using ARVR was a disaster, right? So this mother, so the, the girl saw a picture, so I just like she was 16, 17. This mother put the ARVR headset on, was doing something for a minute, and then she ran 100 miles an hour in the, into the refrigerator. Oh, no. It is hilarious. It's like <laughs> in the means of use. If I find I'll send it to you. Right? It's like ladies that stand there, and then bam. I get how that could happen. Yeah. I, I'm not real coordinated with the headset on, I'll tell you. So I get it. Yeah. So this grant from Comcast, you have to apply for it every year, or they automatically renew it? How's that work? There are different grants that come up. It, it's cyclical. It's not necessarily every year. And uh, do, does the Comcast, other companies tell you about these grants? You have to actually go on your own and research them and, and find them on your own. Our, our partners at Comcast keep us aware okay. of the opportunity. Uh, there are other grants with other corporations that we have to seek out. Okay. So next, this one I did not know, but October's National Disability, Disability Employment Awareness Month. Has that always been like that? Is that something new or? That goes way back, okay. way back. Um, maybe um, till just after the ADA was passed in 1990. Okay. okay. And so what's the focus for the month? I mean, like, is like, is there like celebration going on or like, is like laws get passed or like, what, what do y'all do to like bring awareness of that? We do a lot of advocacy. So uh, you'll see our social media going crazy with uh, employment for people with disabilities. Uh, we, we get our legislators involved. We get them out to our programs to see what's going on. Uh, you know, Easter Seals, we're affiliated with Easter Seals Inc., which gets us into DC and we can uh, knock on doors and talk to, to people there. Uh, there's a lot that happens that month. I'm really proud of that month. So the way I came to Easter Seals, Washington, back in 1995, a few years ago, uh, was as a job developer. So the employment program has my heart because uh, I helped people who had never worked or who hadn't been successful and were going through job after job. Um, people with disabilities, with barriers to competitive employment, get real jobs and change their lives. And, you know, that was addicting. That's what stuck me with Easter Seals. And that's when I, I realized that Easter Seals was that and so much more. And uh, kind of started my career going. So talk about this. I think this is something most people don't know. But like, if you're disabled, they can actually pay you less for minimum wage, correct? Boy, you just hit a nerve, Jason. So talk about that. To me, I, I knew it and I didn't know it. Like, man, this kind of seems like fucking unfair, right? Like, if they're doing the same job, but like, I don't, I, I don't know. First of all, I kind of, I kind of get it. You know, hey, we want to incentivize employers to hire, you know, this group of people, so pay them less. But then it's like, I mean, like you're not going to pay any other group less, right? So like, 
I, I could maybe even say, like, okay, pay him less for 60 days. Once he put really do the job, then bump it up, right? But just to be like distinct. And then what's like, how, like, how much less is it, right? It's like $3 less, $4 less, or that depends on the place. It's complicated. Okay. I'll do what I can to unravel this for you. Uh, this started back with, uh, with our country's labor laws, and they uh, had an exception called 14C. So Labor Code 14C allows certain companies under certain circumstances to pay people less than minimum wage. What it evolved into was what used to be known as sheltered workshops. And I choke on the words, Jason, because I am so firmly against all of this. Uh, but it evolved into these sheltered workshops where people with developmental disabilities would come and they were told, you, this is where you work. You, you have this job. Now, these are people with um, developmental and intellectual disabilities. And so this is where you work. This is your job. And they would do the same repetitive task over and over, sometimes only to have that task undone in front of them so that they could do it again. And they were paid what they called a productivity wage. So someone like you, Jason, would do the same task. So say the job is to put shrink wrap on CD cases. So in an hour, you could do 50. And so that, would, that became the standard. So then they have the, the people with disabilities do it, and maybe they can only do 20 in an hour or one or 30, and they get a percentage of the wage based on their productivity level. So they, they could be making 28 cents an hour. That, that is so foul. Thank you. That doesn't, that doesn't seem right. It's like, I mean, I think any person, any kind of goodness and common sense would say, okay, that's something that I write about this. You and I are aligned. We're aligned. And thank God the state of Washington is, is aligned. So you won't find 14C organizations in Washington anymore. They're not funded through, uh, the, through DDA, the Developmental Disabilities Administration. They're, uh, they're pushed out because philosophically it's wrong. You will find it in other states. And the problem is I belong to Easter Seals and Easter Seals is a network of affiliates. So I am actually associated with other organizations that do sub-minimum wage practices every day. And uh, I advocate strongly about it uh, that that's not okay, that we've got to move with the times. And we are, to, to be fair, uh, Easter Seals National and the affiliates have a plan to move away from this practice. But um, I'm, act, I'm glad, I'm sort of glad you brought this up and I'm sort of not because now I'm like hot. <laughs> That'll make, make for a better talk. <laughs> so what's the right term? Is like disabled people, um, is it something else? What's like the correct term people should be called? To have well, good, good luck um, figuring that out. So when I started with Easter Seals, I was told it's easy, Kathy. It's easy to be respectful about people with disabilities. Just use People first language, put the person first. So it's not a blind man. It's a man who is blind. It's not um, a deaf girl. It's a girl who is deaf. Just always put the person first. You can't go wrong. So that's what I did. That's what I, how, how I taught my directors and, and how, how the culture, we're just like, this is how we're going to be respectful. Well, it's not the case anymore. So over the last couple of years, there's been a movement 
for identity first language. And there are people with disabilities who don't want to be identified uh, in people first. They want to be uh, the blind man or the deaf girl. They're proud of their identity, much like someone of a you know racial identity is proud of their identity. Uh, so you kind of can't win. Uh, you should always ask, you know, how do you like to be referred to? Uh, and, uh, and go with that. Or I err on the side of people first language and let them correct me if, uh, if they don't prefer that. Okay. But it's changing every day. All right. So a correct term be like people with disability? That's fine. Okay. So do businesses have like an incentive to hire people with disabilities? Like do they, do they get a tax breaks or anything like that? Or it just depends location, location. No, there is. It's written into our, uh, our government where you can get a tax break under certain circumstances for hiring somebody with a disability for a certain length of time. Sure. So I like to say it doesn't matter how good or bad the economy is. It's always hard to find a job. I have to imagine it's even harder for people with disabilities, right? It is. It is. It depends on, on their barriers to employment, of course, uh, and who they've got in their corner. Uh, we have a really awesome workforce development program. And we're, we're placing people in really cool jobs. You know, there's this, this term that, uh, that I bring up with my staff. And when I, when I see them start to go for the easy placement and just help somebody get whatever job, I'm like, no food, filth, and flowers. No food, filth, and flowers. Because uh, traditionally, if somebody wasn't working in a sheltered workshop back in the day, they were working, in, you know, slinging hash or uh, taking out the garbage or, you know, Pulling, pulling weeds in the back. Um, those, those always kind of jobs that, that you and I don't want to do are the jobs they would give to people with disabilities. So, you know, those can be very meaningful jobs for people. And, and we do, if that's their plan, that's their plan. But if we're just putting them into food, filth, and flowers because we can't find something better, we don't want to work harder, that's not okay. We should always have really high expectations. You might not know this, but how does unemployment work for for these people, like, like pose our, I just had a regular person, pose a regular person gets 12 weeks, do the people with disabilities get the same 12 weeks or they get extra unemployment benefits for the situation? Well, they'll get the regular unemployment benefits. They might be able to go back on SSI if they were on that. Uh, so it just depends what they had before they worked. Okay. So what's, so with people with disabilities, of course there's nothing they can't do. But realistically, like suppose someone's blind, obviously, if they apply to fly a plane, you know, you might look them sideways, right? So how do you like have them like, hey, I know you want to fly a plane, but you're blind and there's no technology to make you see, right? I mean, I guess there is. Like, a lot of planes are on autopilot now, so maybe that's the best situation. But I think you know what I'm talking about, right? How do you, how do, you do that? Yeah, yeah. I've got an example. So uh, I worked with a, a young man once who wanted to be a pro baseball player, and he thought he was going to be the next Mariner. Uh, and, uh, and I love baseball, so I'm like, man, I really wish you could be the next Mariner. Um, I can't make the team, you can't make the team, but we could try to get you into the stadium and see what positions they have there so you could be around the yeah. players and uh, get in the broadcast booth, do some cool stuff. And we were able to do some things around that. Nice. So, nice. so we look, uh, cool. you know, we nice. look around the edges, okay. I guess, would be the answer. In what form? What's your, like, what's your definition of success for like, like getting people a job is like, I probably have 20 people in your system, like getting all 20 jobs as success, 10% of jobs. Like you have like a definition of success. Oh, everyone should work. Everyone can work. I want a hundred percent. 
Okay. I want a hundred percent all the time. And then after a little bit, I want to relook at their jobs and see if, should we be moving them up? Should they be working more hours, getting more money, getting more benefits, doing something different? And how do you, how do you like train a coach? Be like, suppose like those always want any kind of group. There's one person like kind of has a negative attitude. Like, you know, I don't want to do this, like, you know, and do the own thing. How do you like kind of coach them and treat them? Okay. Like, it's not all about you. You know, you have to do your part too. You have to meet us halfway. So you mean the, the job seeker? Yeah. Uh, well, we up front, so job seekers are government funded. So they come to us and say they're referred to us by a certain government arm because we get paid fee for service, right? So we're going to get paid to serve John. Uh, and, and right up front, we're like, John, there are other vendors that do what we do. You don't have to go with us or you could go with us. Here's why you should. And we map that out. But we also say you don't just get rights when you work with us. You also have responsibilities. And part of you playing out those responsibilities is going to make you a better guy. And it's going to make you a better, a better employee. You're going to have a better life. So it's a partnership here. And here's the contract. And so we're going to do this. You're going to do that. And you know up front going into it. If this is, you're not comfortable with this, I can give you a list of other vendors to go out there and try. Try okay. to help you get a job. But we're very upfront with how we work. And this might not be relevant, but um, these people, the most of them still live with their parents or they live on their own? It's a mixture. Um, we have quite a few people who live in group homes or supported situations, um, but some still live with their parents. So how do you deal with the parents who like might be too overprotective or like not taking care of my kid right? My kid just, you know, I just say their kids are spoiled or brat because, you know what I'm saying? But like, how do you like, hey, hey, mom or dad, like you're actually hurting your kid by doing this? You know, what's funny is that can be the biggest barrier to employment, not their disability, uh, not their education or their skill level, but somebody holding them back. And, uh, you know, I, I recently was uh, told a really cool definition of enabling. And That's the word enabling, enabling. Yeah. And uh, I will never forget it. Now you won't. Uh, enabling is helping to fail. I like that. Yeah. Uh, helping that's, to fail. That's a good definition. And so sometimes we have to tell families that you have so much positive intent to help John get a job and be successful and you're helping too much. You're helping to fail. And we, we just help them to see that. And we, we uh, cut things back a little bit. Okay. You're not comfortable with this job or, or this routine. Um, how about we start way back here on step A um, and just uh, kind of baby step it. Is there any stats out there showing like the life expectancy of people with disabilities versus people without disabilities? It really depends on the medical situation okay. of the person. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't think we can generalize that. Okay. All right. So next, there's something called a confidential online ASQ screening tool. Can you talk about that? Oh, sure. That's the ages and stages questionnaire. Uh, that is a tool to help uh, parents make sure their children are developing on time. Uh, you know, you're supposed to walk at a certain time. You're supposed to speak at a certain time. Um, you're supposed to have certain social skills. Uh, and if, if there's a delay, this questionnaire is just a quick way to say, hey, you know, you might want to pay attention to this. You might want to talk to your pediatrician about this. So it's just a quick screening tool. And all these, I'm guessing these are pretty accurate. They are pretty accurate. Okay. You know, they're not meant to be diagnoses. They're meant to be door openers, conversation starters. And they're really good at that. Okay. And this, this test has been around for a long time, I'm guessing. Yeah, I think, um, I think a good 15 years or so. 
Okay. And does it, is, is this tools used like across the world? Definitely in the United States. I don't know outside. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, but you're pretty confident it's a pretty good tool though. It's a good tool. We okay. use it in our child development centers. I've okay. seen it in pediatric offices. Um, it's, it's best practice. So obviously from your bio, Easter Seals is your life's work. <laughs> so how did you get, how, why, how did this become your life's work versus all the other things you could have done? You know, uh, I am uh, not a religious person, Jason. Uh, and so people talk about having a calling. This is as close as I'm ever going to come. So I found Easter Seals because I saw the, the logo in the newspaper when I was really desperate to, to work. Um, we had just moved here and I had little children and my husband had a job and uh, I was bored and I had a college degree and nothing to do with it. And I'm a horrible stay-at-home mom. I love being a mom, uh, but staying home wasn't good for anybody. And so I saw the logo and I applied for a job and uh, it was helping people with disabilities get jobs. I had never done that before. You know, I have a little bit of a history of, with people with disabilities, but, um, but I just went for it. And um, the person who became my mentor, uh, Mike, hired me on, on a, a lark and uh, we hit it off. And I had some success and I loved it. I had some challenge, which every test I've ever taken, you know, you take these personality tests off the charts. I'm motivated by a challenge every single time. And, uh, and it was a challenge, man, you, you get somebody a great job, maybe in the a government job or a really cool job and they sabotage it or they don't show up. Um, and, uh, and they burn that bridge for you. That's a challenge, you know? Um, so uh, I loved it. I, I fed off of it and, and watching people be successful and turn their lives around and watching the community start to view people with disabilities differently because of what I'm doing. Whoa, that's in pretty incredible. So I fell in love with it and then uh, just moved up, became the director of that program and then the vice president of all of our programs. And then in 2002, our CEO left and... Uh, and I became the interim CEO and then the real CEO right after that. <laughs> and it just stuck. And uh, I, I'm honored. I'm honored to do it every day. No, it always makes you laugh when people have this role, like the, the title interim or acting, right? Like, like, it's not like you're doing less of a job, right? I'm an interim CEO, so I'm going to do less of a CEO job. Like, actually, probably do more of a CEO job because you're trying to earn the role full time, right? And I was trying to learn it on the fly. You know, I don't have a business degree. So there was a lot to learn. I had never asked anyone for a donation in my life. I was a program person. Uh, so, so yes, as interim, I felt like I was doing way more work than, than the guy that had it before was. So talk about your experience on your ninth birthday when you met your cousin, Beth Ann. Oh my gosh. So I was born in Virginia, but raised in Southern California. And every year we would get in the family truckster and we'd head across the United States and we'd go on a um, vacation to see our relatives back in Pennsylvania and Virginia. And this one time we're gearing up to go and my mom took me aside and she said, I just want you to know something's going to be different this trip and uh, you're going to meet your cousin, Beth Ann. And I was like, wow, because... You know, we were 3,000 miles from family. I didn't have anybody, any family to play with. I was so excited. And, and she said, yeah, and she's, she's just your age, you know, right at, at nine years old, same as you. And, um, but you need to know that you shouldn't get your hopes up. And I'm like, what? And she goes, 
yeah, I, I don't know if she's going to be able to play with you while, while we're out there because, um, and she used the word, Jason, Beth Ann's retarded. Now we don't use that word anymore, but back then, that's what you said. Back then you said that word, you said the kids that ride the slow bus, you know, the little bus, you know. Short bus. Yeah, short, that's it, short bus. Yeah, all those terms that we don't use anymore. All those terms. And, and in fact, um, my mom would have said today uh, that Beth Ann had Down syndrome, but back then you used the term mongoloid. Uh, but we'll, we'll scrub the language for, for this story. How's that? So, um, so my mom said, you know, Beth Ann has Down syndrome and she's not like you and you're probably not going to be able to play with her. So j- just know that. So set an expectation, right? But Kathy, me, up for a challenge. I'm like, huh, I wonder who this Beth Ann person is. So we drove all the way out there, it took a week, and, uh, and we get to the family reunion, and there are a million adults, and I'm uh, swimming through these legs of people trying to figure out where this music's coming from. All I could hear was this beautiful piano music. And you know, I'm a music person. So, so I source out the music, and there's the piano. And sitting at the piano is this lovely little girl playing Ode to Joy with both hands, no sheet music smiling and, and just beautifully being a musician. And she's about my age, about my size. And I must've looked at her funny because she patted the piano bench and said, please sit by me. So I sat by her. She taught me a few notes on the piano and uh, we played all day. We were best buds. In fact, we played the whole week I was there. And um, at the, you know, the end of the vacation, I went up to my mom. I, she, I, she told me this later when I was old enough to understand. Um, and I said, um, mom, can I please have Down syndrome? Because I want to play the piano like Beth Ann does. And I didn't realize it until, I don't think until I started at Easter Seals, that that's when I formed some really important attitudes and opinions about the world. Um, first, I learned that people with disabilities are just people, period. Uh, and the second thing is, our parents don't know everything. And that was a wake-up call. So is that pretty common for, like, your cousin Beth Ann, obviously had a disability, but she had this enhanced ability to play the piano. Are most people with disabilities like that, where they have, like, you know, they have a disability, but they have, like, they do something else, like, extraordinary? No, not everybody is Rain Man and, and is a savant. Uh, that's a myth, actually. Um, occasionally, yes, somebody hones in on one skill or one talent, but it's, it's actually more rare. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So each of SEALs, that's a nonprofit, correct? We are a nonprofit organization. So as you're, so you're the president for all the, the state of Washington, each of SEALs, right? Right. And how many like clubs or organizations, what is it called a chapter or affiliate? Like affiliate. How many affiliates are there in the state of Washington? Just one. Just one. Okay. Yeah. So we're, uh, we're like a franchise, if you will. So every organization, there are about 70 affiliates in the United States, and everyone is its own 501c3 nonprofit. So we all operate independently. Okay. We pay dues to Easter Seals, Inc. to have the brand. Just like if you wanted to buy a McDonald's, you would pay a franchise fee. Well, we pay dues, and that gives us the Easter Seals brand. We also get some services and some support from the national office as well. Uh, but we signed an affiliation agreement, but they don't govern us. Uh, you know, the, my boss isn't in Chicago. My boss is our volunteer board of directors right here in the state of Washington. Okay. 
And like, how many people work for you? About a hundred. Hundred. So how do you, how do how do you deal with this? Right. Hopefully, it makes sense. Right. So obviously, you're working on a profit. I think you have to realize you're gonna probably get paid less than other people. Right. I mean, that's the unfortunate thing. I think. Right. But how do you like make sure you pay people as close as you can when they should be paid without having people complain? Oh, they're paying so and so hundred thousand dollars a year, and that's taking up admin costs. Why, why should I donate AC Seals when there's all this high admin costs, right? How do you keep that balance? Yeah, you so, and make sure like you like, obviously don't have like judge worker for you, or you want to have some kind of qualified people <laughs> for you. You know, like how do you like make sure it has to be a tough balance? I would think. Yeah, you're hitting on a lot of values with that question, Jason. It's kind of a loaded one. Uh, uh, so first off, it used to be that a donor really wanted to see you have low overhead and high percentage of, of donations going out into services. That was really important. Um, you know, they would, they would look at our tax returns and they would, you know, get dig deep into what we're doing with our money. Uh, and the lower you had that overhead figure, the better. That's actually not the case anymore. That's starting to flip. And I'm so glad because if we're not investing in the infrastructure and growing the organization, it's going to die. So uh, I'm, I am proud of the fact that we have very low overhead. You know, gosh, I think 13 cents on the dollar we spend on administrative and fundraising. At the same time, though, we're all wearing several hats. We're all exhausted. I can't attract the best talent, to your point. And we're, um, we're not investing in growth. We're not investing in really good systems to support our services. So it is a balance. It's a bit of a catch-22. It is starting, the world's starting to get it though. And there's, they're not asking that question so much anymore. And how do you retain your people, right? Like I'm, I'm making this up, right? Suppose you have like a marketing manager and they're making 80,000 a year. They come to you, hey, Kathy, I really want to stay but so-and-so is offering 120000 right? Like, how do you, I mean, obviously, like, I think you, you, know, you got, I think you only go on like, hey, the mission so much, right? Like, you just like, okay, do you just like, hey, marketing manager, you know, I, I thank you for contributions while you were here. You know, I can't compete with that. You know, good luck, you know, and find someone else. Like, how do you work with all that? That conversation comes up. Uh, what I say, and it's true, is you, you reap what you sow. So if you come in, and you are so good at your job and you learn so much that you're uh, making us the, the, best, the best Easter Seals Washington we can be. And you're getting us more business and uh, we're able, we have more revenue coming in the door. I can up your salary. If you're coming in and punching a clock and just getting the minimum done, we're never going to move the needle. We don't move the needle. I can't move your salary. So I really throw it right back in people's uh, laps and see what they do with it. And how do you find your people? Like, do you recruit on LinkedIn or Indeed? Or like, is like, is there like a nonprofit job board out there somewhere you go to? How do you find your people? There are nonprofit job boards. They're not very effective. Uh, Indeed's been pretty effective for us. LinkedIn, more and more. Uh, yeah, pretty much the traditional sources. And do people work in nonprofit tend to stay nonprofit, you know? makes any sense like if you're once you're like once you you might work at Easter Seals then you go to Red Cross and then go to United Way or do you, like, or you see people like going back and forth between nonprofit like profit world I see more people going from for-profit to nonprofit than the other way around okay uh you know people get burned out on making money for the shareholders 
uh, and not having that, that mission and that creativity that comes with working for a nonprofit. Um, I just hired a, a vice president who uh, has no nonprofit background, no disability arena background. Um, and she's a shrewd, smart business person. And I am so excited to have her on board. And she couldn't be more thrilled to be here. And yeah, she took a pay cut and she took it for the right reasons. And she's ready to help us move forward. And, and I told her the same thing. Hey, you elevate us. I elevate you. Now, is that like a headquarters that everyone goes to work in every day? Or is that hybrid, remote? How do y'all do that? Well, it depends. So we have eight programs throughout the state. So they have their own offices. And obviously those are in person. It's really hard to serve someone uh, and take them to the bathroom if you're sitting at home in your yoga pants, right? So we have brick and mortars where people need to show up to work. We also have our state office in Lower Queen Anne, just up the, the road here, uh, where we do administrative and fundraising. And though we do have some flexibility with the schedules there, a little bit hybrid. So Kathy, are there any positions you have right now that you want to like talk about and try to like, you know, recruit here? Like, hey, I'm hiring for this and... Yeah, uh, we actually are looking for um, a marketing person, a marketing manager, and a development person, which is fundraising. So we need a, a you know, middle, middle to high level fundraiser and marketing person. Okay. And this is probably a little question, but how hard is fundraising? I have to guess that has to be pretty hard. I've learned to think it's fun. Um, it can be hard because there's a lot of competition out there. You know, just in the city of Seattle alone, there are over 25,000 nonprofit organizations. So you magnify that by the counties and the entire state. We're competing with a lot of folks. Um, that's probably the hardest thing. But fundraising is just, it's a value proposition. It's just like selling, like a sales it's process, like selling right? that bottle of yeah. bourbon over there. Um, but instead of selling the bourbon, I'm selling, you get a chance to, to change the world by investing in my mission. Yes. And do y'all have like the same people donating every year or does that change it up? Uh, both. Both. We have, um, we have some loyal donors and, and they up their game every year and, and, uh, and give us more. We're so grateful to them. They're, they're really partners with us. Uh, some of them are individuals, some are companies. Uh, and then we, have, we are always looking for, for new donors as well. So how for this? Is there any type of organization that you are not taking money from? I'm going to question if they're like illegal or like, you know, Racist, not take money from those like any type of organization. Like maybe they're like, I'll make this up because maybe they, you know, a fish company or maybe there's something else, right? Like, uh, you know, this is um, this is a topic of conversation between nonprofits. Is like, uh, do we take marijuana money? Um, and you know, we talk about that. I would, uh, depending on the situation. Uh, now it depends how you know what is their marketing message or what kind of deliverables are they looking. Or uh, is it a sponsorship where I have to plaster their name all over the place? And that might be an odd one. Easter Seals sponsored by a cannabis marijuana company. Exactly. <laughs> that might be not going to be a good thing to do. Right. And alcohol too. Some right. could, because people are like, wait a minute, you serve people with fetal alcohol syndrome, but you're taking money from yeah, Budweiser. That might be bad, yeah. You know, that might so be bad, yeah. uh, we do have those ethical questions okay. come up. Uh, we are usually able to work it out um, to where we can uh, still partner. But um, sometimes not. So I'll make this up. I have to presume if someone gives you $1,000 and they said, hey, I want a detailed report every penny cent, you might be like, you only give us $1,000, buddy. No. <laughs> but if someone gave you like $100,000, $500,000, he's, hey, we want some kind of report where the money goes. You do, you do it then or like this. Or is it, 
they give you money and that just trusts you to do the best thing with the money. Well, we ask them up front, is your donation restricted? And, you know, they'll be really honest. They'll say, I, I only want you to spend this on, on your camp or I only want you to buy X with this. Um, but typically they'll say, you know, we trust you. you. You and your board have been doing this a long time. We, you know what your needs are better than I do. And so it's unrestricted. So we know up front. If it's restricted, absolutely we're going to give them a report to show them that we were good stewards with their money. Now, I know you said you pay fees to the NAF ECCLs. Mm-hmm. Does the NAF ECCLs give you anything, like they give you like, like money back or like, any, like anything besides the name or the brand? They pay for our website hosting, which okay. is giant. And they also open doors for us. Okay. So like some of our corporate partners, like Comcast, like Century 21, uh, Easter Seals Inc. has a relationship with them. They open the doors for us locally. And then we're able to partner right here in Washington with those folks. Are there any donors from the state of Washington that have ever like, like how for this, like have been the longest or given you the most money that you want to highlight and talk about? Individual donors? Yeah. Um, the corporations or a person or whatever. Yeah. I, I'll name first names. Uh, we have the coolest thing happening, Jason, on um, the first Saturday in March. We are going to cut the ribbon on a cool new theater out at our camp in Vaughn. Uh, it was just a recreation building, and now it's a state-of-the-art theater with cool sound system, uh, stage, curtains, everything. Because this donor, um, her sister used to go to our camp, and her sister died. And on, on her mother's 90th birthday, she gave us $90,000, $1,000 for each year of her mother's life, in memory of her sister. And they said, do something awesome at camp that uh, that our family member would have loved. And we're building a theater without money. Um, so that family is uh, very dear to us and they're gonna come out, we're gonna recognize them. Nice. nice. Yeah, it's gonna be great. Can you talk more about, more about this camp? Is, is this camp like only in the state of Washington? It's like a camp goes over or everywhere, East or Seal, so it's like just here. Not all affiliates have camps. In fact, very few. Camps have closed like crazy. Uh, they're very expensive. Do you, I don't know if you remember the money pit uh, that came out, that, I don't know, that, 20 years the ago. The movie with the house. With the house. Yeah. That's our camp. Okay. Camp is a money pit. Uh, everything breaks all the time, especially in the Pacific Northwest weather. Uh, so we're constantly replacing things. But uh, we love camp. It, with the 17 acres, fully accessible out on the Vaughn Bay. It was donated to us in the where, 70s. Where, where, where's that at, the Vaughn Bay? Uh, it's near Gig Harbor, okay. if that helps. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's beautiful and it's a magical place for, we serve children and adults. I mean, people think of summer camp, they think of kids. Uh, we have sessions that are just for adults because adults with disabilities often don't get out of their group homes. Well, they do now. They come to our camp for a week and they get to be themselves. And how long is the camp? It's about a week. A week, okay. About six days. And how long have you been doing the camp? It was donated to us in the 70s okay. uh, by this, this pair of uh, sisters who have a, a really fun story. But they donated it to Easter Seals and said, you have to build a camp for people with disabilities. One of the sisters had a disability. And, um, and then they passed away, and uh, the camp has been going ever since. In fact, we're celebrating our 50th year of camp right now. On average, how many people attend the camp? Uh, usually about 35 okay. on a, is in, in a session. We could go up to 50 depending on the needs of the campers. And like, what's the goal of the camp? 
is like this makes sure everyone has a good time of fun and like, you know, well, learn a new skill. It's twofold. It's uh, there's a goal for the camper and that yes, is around fun and make friends and, um, and learn new skills. Uh, try, try things, be, be scared, you know, yeah. get, get out there in a canoe. Uh-huh. Um, uh, maybe get in front of a microphone at the talent show, things you've never done before. Um, but also be comfortably be yourself. Uh, and then the other goal is that whoever cares for that camper gets a break, gets a respite break. I, when I became the VP of programs, the first program I was sent out to was camp and it was on a checkout day. So all the campers had been there for six days. It was a kid's session. And, uh, Mr. Smith came up and he's, he's checking out Billy. And I would, I realized how stupid I was at the time. Um, and I said, Mr. Smith, you've had a whole week off. What'd you do? Did you take your wife to Hawaii? Did you have like the vacation of your life? What did you do with your week off? And he looked at me like I had three eyeballs and he's like, Kathy, you don't get it. And I'm like, and he goes, I took a nap. I balanced my checkbook. And I took my other kid to the movies without interruption. Yeah, that does sound about right, don't it? Respite. Yeah. You know, I'll never forget that. That him t- imparting that to me was like, okay, this is what it's like to care give 24-7 yeah. and finally get a break. So the camper, is it like an application process? I have to imagine more than 35 people apply to the little camp. Yeah. So we just went live last week on registration for the summer and we were like 90% sold out by the end of the first day. So it depends on the session. You know, certain sessions are for adults or children and they're at certain times of the year, Um, but they sell out fast and then we have a waiting list. And the camp instructors, I'm guessing they're affiliate or they're part of the Easter Seals? The camp? Yeah. The people who, who teach in the camp. Oh, the staff? The staff, yes, staff. Um, The staff is a mixture. They're all summer staff. I have a year-round director and some other other year-round staff, but mostly the seasonal staff come in in May and they leave in August. Okay. And many of them are international staff. So we work with agencies in other countries and they recruit uh, these people that love to work at summer camps. And so we have people from Africa, Ireland, England, Mexico, who come out and uh, our camp counselors and other positions at our camp for the summer. So you walk, you know, it's, it's this experience. It's like going around the world and, and you're really just at camp. So the place the camp is, that belongs to y'all, right? We own it outright. So when the camp's not going on, what do you do with this space? Like, do you rent out to other groups? Is this there being unused? Yeah. So we have, a, we have an indoor pool that we keep at a therapeutic temperature, 90 degrees because that helps people with disabilities relax and, and uh, be limber in the water. And then we have a hot tub as well. So this indoor pool is used year round. We have uh, people from the community come out, they do community swim. We have swim lessons. We do physical therapy in the pool. So that's used the whole time. And then we do rent the facility to certain groups, um, usually like-minded. They have to have a similar mission. Okay. All right. So this, this came on mind. You probably don't know this, but is there some, some stat out there showing like if you're born in a city or a certain state or t- certain community that you have a more highly, right, like more highly be disabled? Like, post, like, of course they say, you know, if your mother, you know, drunk alcohol and smoke cigarettes, is there any stat out there saying if you're born like, like by a coal plant or by a farm or like anything like that saying like, or is this pretty much like random that you're going to be disabled? There are theories um, about everything. There are a lot of theories about autism. 
um, you know, around vaccinations and around uh, certain diets and things. They're all just theories. Um, and a lot of them have been disproven. Uh, there is a, a, a correlation uh, with MS, multiple sclerosis, with the Pacific Northwest. And the theory is we don't get enough sunlight, you know, and then vitamin D. So, um, but it, it's, to my knowledge, they're all theories. So, you have any partnerships any other nonprofits, like there's St. Jude's Hospital, other the nonprofits that don't do the same thing, but kind of do the same thing? Are there any partnerships out there? Yeah, there are. And I'm always open to those, as a matter of fact. Uh, one of our child care centers, we have a, a child development center in SeaTac uh, called Angle Lake, and it is a partnership with Lutheran Community Services. It's in their building. So, yeah, we do a lot of that. So, Kathy, for people don't know, what is the mission of Easter Seal? Uh, I mean, real basic, it's to help people with disabilities and their families have the best life they can have. And that's been, always been mission since day one, as far as you know? It has. I mean, the scope of work has changed over time. I mean, Easter Seals is over 100 years old, and here in Washington, we're 76 years old. Um, so, of course, we've seen changes. There used to be uh, a focus on polio and post-polio syndrome. We don't see that as much anymore. Uh, there used to be a focus only on children, and we serve children and adults with disabilities. So, the, I would say the mission, if, if anything, has broadened. Can you talk some about how Social Security works for disabled people? Um, a little bit. I'm not super close to that. Uh, but Social Security, uh, you know, there's supplemental security income. So it's SSI. Uh, and that's, um, that's basic need money. And you can qualify for that if you, you know, if you have a developmental disability and you jump through certain hoops, you qualify for that. And that's just a tiny little paycheck that you get. And then you get access to medical care as well. Um, but, you know, there are, uh, there are challenges with that because you don't necessarily have great incentives to work when you're on SSI. There are some programs out there, but uh, they're limiting. I remember when I was job developing, I'd get, have this great opportunity for someone. And I'm like, look, it's full time. It's 40 hours a week. It pays this great wage. It's exactly the work you want to do. And they would say, whoa, whoa, I can't work full time because if I make too much money, I'll lose my SSI. And then I'll lose my medical benefits. And if this job doesn't work out, I'm screwed. So you have yeah, to kind of work with the system. Yeah. It, it's frustrating, actually. So I found this. So it says, Kathy formed the attitude that all people deserve the opportunity, opportunity to feel productive, valued, and included in the community. How do you do that? How do I form the attitude or how do I make them productive? Yeah, the whole thing, yeah. The whole thing. Well, it is about attitude. Um, I remember I was at one of our childcare centers one day and an employee who didn't work there very long, I'll tell you, came running out um, very frantic with a four-year, five-year-old in her hands and he was wet. He had wet, wet his pants. And, and she said, I don't know what we're doing. Why do we have children here who aren't party, potty trained and they're over the age of two? And she handed him to the director and went back in her classroom. And, whoa. whoa. Um, and I so- I talk about a, a wrong job fit. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, we can train people all day, every day, and we can give them equipment and, and all of the tools they need. But if they don't have the right attitude, it's just not going to work. And the attitude should be 
high expectations. It should be everything you expect for your child or yourself um, and, and help people get there. If somebody's not meeting their goals, somebody we serve isn't meeting their goals, we need to look at ourselves first. What do we believe in that person and how are we setting them up for success? So you started out as a employment specialist in 95, right? Yep. I think some people, like another version of Kathy would still be the same job because some people, I think that's like, they have the job, they're happy with it, no, no goals, whatever. But you were motivated and drilled, like, you know, I want to like do as much as I can and now you're the CEO. What, what caused you to like, like leave that job and like go up the, the each of Phil's red ladder, so to speak, become CEO? Reverse it where a lot of people just like did the job all these years. Yeah, you know, I did enjoy the job, um, but, and I, I didn't go necessarily looking to climb the ladder. The opportunities opened up and, and there, there was a need to be met. You know, there was a director position open. There was nobody doing that work. Um, and, and I knew I could do it. It was more like that. So there's a need to be met. Um, you know, same with the VP of programs and then same with the CEO. Um, the, the board came to me when I was interim CEO, a few board members and said, you know, there are some board members who want to go out and get somebody from outside, somebody who guarantees million dollar gifts and that they're going to change the organization philanthropically overnight. And then there's this, this core group who we know that's not going to happen. And if we bring in somebody from the outside, it could really be the end of what we value about Easter Seals, Washington. But we believe in you, Kathy, and you've worked really hard and, and you care about the mission and you're not going to let anything screw this up. You need to put your hat in the ring. How can you say no to that, Jason? Kind of hard, hard to. Yeah. So that's what happened to me. And I'm like, I'm up for a challenge. They said they need me. I had to give you a boost of confidence, right? Like these people believe in me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, let's, let's give it a shot. Was I worried that I would fail, you know, on some level, but, um, but, you know, I just, I took the, the things I use at home, like balancing my checkbook and, and what I care about at home. And I just amplified it and I infused that in the team and we did a big turnaround plan. The organization was in trouble. Uh, so we did a big turnaround plan. I reached out to some of my mentors and colleagues, got some help, asked for help. Had a little bit of luck. We got a huge bequest in that year. Some money fell out of the sky. And uh, it just started to work for me. Never underestimate the power of luck, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'll take a little luck. So I have to imagine being the CEO of East Seals is a 24-7 job. I, we kind of talked about this earlier, but like, what do you have to be on? Like you have to be doing a job 24 seven. How do you protect your time? How do you protect yourself? Like, is there like, you tell your people, Hey, I'm here forever. Whenever, but from nine to 10 o'clock on Saturday morning, don't contact me or something like that. Oh man, I suck at that. I just suck at that. I, uh, I hate the thought of somebody needing me and they feel like they can't reach out to me. So I don't do that. Uh, I do have a lot of really good people on my team, so I don't always have to be in pocket. Um, and I have an amazing husband who takes care of all of the stuff, the dog, the house, the cars, the yard. Um, I would not be in this position if it wasn't for him. So um, having a great team is good. I do need to get better at setting boundaries. I'll tell you, um, I do uh, for me and for people that care about me. Um, but it's worked so far. So I'm guessing like most people have a priority list, right? So tomorrow when you go to work, 
How do you make sure you work on priorities one, two, and three versus priority number 97? Well, you know, when I started, uh, my boss was in, this is old school, was into a Franklin planners. Do you remember Franklin? Yeah, I remember those. Yeah. And that's and definitely he, old school. Yeah, I know. Paper, paper and pens. And he taught me the ABC method. And so you list out all your tasks for the day. And uh, A is must do, uh, B is should do, and C is could do. And you cannot leave for the day until your A's are done. And then everything else gets an arrow and gets pushed to the next day. And I, I still pretty much use that. The next question, like suppose you have something on your C list, right? And it's been on your C list for, say, for a month, right? You keep it in your C list or you say, hey, this is my C list for a month. Obviously, I'm not going to be able to do this. Let me cross it out or give it to someone else. Yeah, I'll either bump it up to a B or, or cross it off or delegate it. Yeah, for sure. And do you have any like tools you use to help you be more productive? Um, I, uh, my, <laughs> my team would say I have a lot of Kathyisms. Uh, I have a lot of philosophies and phrases that I live by and that I teach. Um, like like uh, I use the term, this will serve us well. And I try to figure out what's really working and what's not. I use that quite a bit. Um, so, so it's, it's less tools and it's more philosophy. Okay. And can you talk about some of the mentors you've had through your career? Oh my gosh. I've had some amazing mentors. Uh, the man who hired me, um, he, he died recently. His name is Mike Lorsch. Um, probably one of the most incredible men and I will ever meet. And, uh, he took a chance on me for sure. Um, really funny story. When he interviewed me, he said, wait a minute, I feel like I know you. And I said, you know what? I feel like I know you too, but we couldn't place it. Turns out we went to the same junior high school in California so many years ago, different grades, but we remembered each other from, from that experience or from the yearbook or something. So we had a connection and, um, and we hit it off so well. And he, he was brilliant and he was uh, transparent and admitted when he didn't know something and cared about people so much and had such a, an amazing sense of humor. And he taught me a lot of what I use today to shape my team. Um, yeah, I, I owe a lot to Mike. So a follow-up question, and they mean the more important part of the question. Who are you mentoring right now? I, I don't know if I can formally name people. I just, I do have a lot of people, gosh, almost daily tell me, you know, thank you. I learned so much from you. Um, there is, there is somebody in my rotary club who calls me and says, you know, I need a mentor and here's the deal I'm having this leadership issue. Um, so it happens quite a bit. It's really humbling. I enjoy it. Yes. So next we're going to change subjects real fast. Talk about your dog. Benny. Yeah. So what, what kind of dog is it? He's a Chewini. Okay. And how long have you had? Do had you the know Chewini? Yeah. Okay. Uh, we've had Benny about three years. Okay. And uh, we are, we're a two dog family and we keep losing one and then getting another. Right now we're a one dog family because we lost one. Uh, but we got Benny. Uh, he's a rescue. He came up from Houston on a, on a truck with 400 other animals. And uh, he was so tiny when they handed him to me, I thought he was a gerbil. I'm like, you gave me the wrong animal. I ordered a puppy. They're like, no, no, this is it. Uh, we named him Benjamin David Goodman after the band leader, Benny Goodman. And uh, he's, he's something else. I'm guessing he, bring, he brings a lot of joy and fun. 
Yeah, he's the most snuggly dog we've ever had. I mean, he'll get right up in your chest and lay there and snuggle you. I've never had that before. And I guess you're in the market for another dog? We before? are totally in the market for another okay. dog, but not a giant dog. Okay. Um, we're, we're too old and just not ready for that. But, um, but we are in the market. Okay. So, yeah, if you so know you, anybody. So you've been a dog family since forever? Forever. Okay. Forever. So I think most people get this wrong. I think most people, they really think of like a, say like a, a, not, a for-profit business, a non-profit, they think there's a real big difference. The only difference is the tax stuff, right? Because you, right. you still have to hire people and you have to budget. Like there's no difference. You're, like you're, you're the CEO of a company, correct? Yes, think about it, exactly. Right? A business. And people forget that. You're right. They hear the word charity or nonprofit and they think all the rules are different. It's not like you just, somebody gives $100,000, you just waste it and you get another $100,000 or something, right? It's like... <laughs> There's budget restraints, there's hiring restraints, all those restraints. It probably had to be harder than a regular business, I would think. It's harder because we can't raise our prices. So, you know, when McDonald's has to pay more for their buns, they raise the price of a Bismac, you know, Big Mac. But when we have to pay more to, to retain employees, um, how we can't really raise the price that the government pays us for services or, you know, the grant we get, uh, our income is fairly fixed. But yet the costs keep going up and up and up. So that, that is one hardship about being a nonprofit. But we also get some benefits. You know, I can, have, I can have volunteers. I can have people help me out for free. Yeah, you probably don't want to do that as a regular business. Yeah, you hey, might, you might hey, get into some trouble. Hey, U.S. government, I have 20 people working for free for a year, you know. <laughs> yeah, that might not go well for you. Yeah, that might not look. And, and you can't walk into a business and hand them 100 bucks and not receive something either. I mean, I can take donations. Um, so it is a balance, but as I lectured, I just did a lecture yesterday, um, to one of our programs. Uh, we are a business. We have revenue expenses. Uh, we have obligations. So we have to start seeing ourselves as a business for sure. Is Easter sales only in the United States? No, it's really big in Canada. And then it's in a, a few other countries. The United States, I'm guessing there's like 50 state, uh, presidents. No, it's different. There are 70 affiliates in the United okay. States. Some, of, some states have more than one. Florida okay. has, I don't know, four plus. California has several. Um, some states only have one. And how often do you deal with these other affiliates? Like, is it like a monthly meeting you have to get on? Is it like a yearly conference? You don't have to do anything. You know, again, they don't govern us. Um, but we do learn from each other and partner with each other. Um, I talk to affi other affiliates probably once a week or so. Okay. Yeah. So... For your job right now, what, what gives you the most joy? What do you like? Wake up every day, like, man, I get to do this. I, I, I can't wait to do this as president. Well, two things. You know, I, every day I think about the people we serve. And, you know, during the pandemic, we had to shut, our, shut down our camp. So that's 400 people that weren't getting served who count on us. Or like, you know, I described the respite situation. We're their only break the whole year. And suddenly... I, and I personally got on the phone and called them and said, we, we, can't, we can't have camp this year. And we actually did that two years in a row. We had to shut down. And, um, and so I, I heard the tears. You know, I heard the anguish. Um, we feel an amazing need in these families' lives. And, and it brings me joy when I can do that. And it brings me anguish when I can't. So. Um, that is a responsibility that weighs on me every day. And it's something I'm also very proud of every day. Uh, and the, you know, so 
that's one thing. And then the other thing is the, the business leadership part. I love helping people develop. I love seeing them learn and grow and aspire to that next level of their job or, or maybe even leave my organization because they've gotten to uh, a place in their career where they can just move on. Um, I love developing folks. Is it crazy how many people out there were like, they're a boss and someone says, hey, you know, Jason, I'm going to leave for this little job. And they, they get mad, right? Like, you're being this lawyer, you're leaving me. That's some bullshit. Like, you should be happy, right? If they're leaving, to me, if you leave for a better job, that means you coach them a training to be a better person, right? That's right. But so many people, oh, you've been this lawyer. I, I, I don't get that. I've never gotten that. Yeah, you know, um, I've been around people like that too, where loyalty is everything. And especially now, it's not. It's not. And it, it's really about the right fit. And there might come a time where the fit isn't right anymore. And, and yeah, you need to applaud them and, and help them go to their next adventure. And how do you like, how do you professionally develop your people? Is it like, is that like ESO plan? It's just a plan you have to follow. Do you have your own production plan? Product, I mean, not product, but like a progressive development plan for people. It's totally up to us. Uh, so we do it pretty individually. Uh, we have such a variety of positions. You know, I, I have janitors and nurses and teaching assistants, um, all the way up to vice presidents and everything in between. So we really individualize it. Depends what they're looking for. Okay. And then back to the question where I asked you, like, what gives you the most joy? So next part of the question, like, what part of your job, like, you, you have to do, like, I have to do this because I'm the president. I can't give it to anyone else. But if you could, you would hand this part of the job off to someone else. Oh, I, I, don't, I don't think that exists. Okay. I, even the stuff that drives me crazy is meaningful to me. Okay. Yeah. And there is stuff that drives me crazy. <laughs> I'm sure there is. Sure there is. Um, so what's your, like, your plan for Easter Seals? Is it like to um, increase fundraising, is it increase awareness? Like, what's your goal for next year for Easter Seals Washington? In a nutshell, growth. Growth. You know, it's, it's so sad. We work so hard, and I've got these 100 employees, and we really don't serve that many people. I want, I want to blow that out of the water. I want to grow that number at least by 25% this year alone and then move on from there. Um, we need to be in more counties. We're, we're in King, Pierce, uh, Kitsap, and, uh, and then in Yakima. And that's it. We're Easter Seals, Washington. You know, we should be in Spokane. We should be in Snohomish. We should be all over the place. Uh, so I want to expand geographically. I want to serve more people. I want to start serving veterans and military folks. Many affiliates do it really well. Um, we're not in that space, and we should be. So I just need the right partners, the right conversations and start serving people. Um, yes, we need more revenue. I want to grow revenue and I've got to grow our board of directors. You know, they're volunteers and they're our backbone. They're, they're our eyes and ears to the, the world and, and bringing more people into our organization. And they're really small. We only have seven right now. We should be around 15. So I need to grow our board. And what does the board do for you? Like what's the responsibility? Um, so they are overall responsible for the organization. They're my boss, if you will. And they're volunteers, which is a strange dynamic, uh, because I'm often shaping what they do, but yet they're supposed to be supervising me. So it's a weird relationship. Um, basically they show up for meetings, you know, every other month, they read the financials to make sure they understand things. They help with our fundraisers. We do ask them to make a certain level of donation to the organization and to bring in donations to a certain level um, so that they can have skin in the game. And then mostly what they're supposed to do is get out there and brag about how cool we are. 
and make people want to be involved with our what we're doing. Does East Hills have some kind of like annual fundraiser event that everyone knows about? I think this one of has like a relay for relay for life they do. Like what does East Hills have something like that where like every year in June there's like some big event that draws fundraising, draws attention? You know, we did. The pandemic put a wrench in that, of course. We're trying to figure that out right now. So we do do a, a golf tournament in conjunction with Century 21 North Holmes Realty that's very successful. And, and that's usually in August. Um, another Century 21 office, Real Estate Center, does a mini, starting to do an annual mini golf event um, for us and with us. We were doing a gala-ish thing. I, I don't think galas are where it's at anymore. They're a lot of work, a lot of money. And who wants to put on a black tie? Yeah. You know, they're just, they're kind of passe. So we're, we're actually coming to the table about what should we be doing to not only raise money, but to raise awareness. You know, what, what is the next big event? So you're the president. What's like, is there like, I know you heard said VP of programs. What other, what's like VP of marketing, VP, what other roles are underneath you? Yeah, so there's um, a chief operating officer um, who she handles our contracts and, and a lot of other um, uh, big business arms for us. So she's, she's our business focus. And then there's um, the vice president of programs. We have vice president of human resources because we have 100 plus employees and, and volunteers. Uh, and then we have um, our vice president of community engagement and he oversees marketing and fundraising has managers under him. And those are the positions we're re recruiting for. So that's basically our executive office. And then we have all the program managers out in the programs. So obviously you're happy with what you're doing now, but is there any situation, any job at the national level that would tie you to become like VP of national something? I'm not moving to Chicago. Okay. So, so. so it's, it's, it's the state, the things in Chicago. Okay. Um, I, I don't think so. Okay. I like making a daily difference. Okay. I like being local. Even if I could work remotely, um, the mission would be diluted. And um, I'm, I get pretty high on what I'm doing here. Okay. And how often do you have to go to the state of Washington government in Olympia like, to like, give testimony in front of state senators or state representatives like what you do or anything like that? Uh, you know, it's pretty rare that I have to. Um, I would like to do more of it. So as we staff up and I can carve out more time for that, I'd love to be down there a lot when the session's moving, when it's going like right now. Do different cities in the state of Washington have different laws applying to this? I know there's a state of Washington law, but like does each city have like maybe like Seattle says you have to pay disabled people $20 oh. an hour or maybe, you know, uh, Bremerton might say $13 an hour or like maybe... The city of, we'll say, Bremerton says, hey, each building has to have 50% real social accessibility, right? Each city differs like one overreaching law that covers all that stuff. Uh, it, it's not about people with disabilities, but there are, like, the city of Seattle has a lot of its own laws about um, uh, minimum wage in certain pockets of the city or um, paid time off. We have to give the, our employees in Seattle get more paid time off than our employees in other cities. But when it comes to the people we serve, it's pretty across the board. Okay. All right. Yeah. So how do you like make sure you keep up to date on everything you keep up to date with? As far as like being a business leader, all the tech stuff, you know, the war changes are 20,000 times to so, like keep up to date, like all the different changes of laws, all that kind of stuff. Well, thank God I don't have to. I just have people that are experts in that, okay. that stuff. So I sometimes I'll, at a team meeting, I'll draw a brain on the whiteboard as best I can. 
and all the different lobes. And then I'll put their names on those lobes uh, <laughs> because that, that's my brain and they all own certain sections of it. And I just expect them to be up to date on everything and be experts. I don't want to or, or can know the answer to everything. Uh, but as long as they're there and they're up on it, then we're going to keep moving. And I, I personally know the answer to this, but do you ever plan on retiring? I just plan on doing this until, you know. Dying at my desk. Yeah. Uh, someone call it, they call it 10 toes up. You're going to work until you're 10 toes up in the coffin. Uh, that could happen. It could happen. Uh, I don't know. I'm weighing it. You know, I want to make sure I'm effective at what I do. Um, and, you know, my husband's health has some issues. Um, so there might be a time I look at the R word, uh, retirement. Right now, it's not top of mind. So let's suppose it is time for you to like retire, whatever. Do you think it'd be better for the next president to be like someone internal to seals or someone like complete out, out of the left? Like, for, so you said he had, you said the, the market person was like no nonprofit experience, right? So what do you think would be better? Or do you think they'd be, just be equally balanced? I think a balance would be perfect okay. if you can find it for sure. Um, but it's got to, it's, you know, it goes back to attitude. Um, it's got to be someone who wants, wants to do this. Uh, this is not easy. You know, it's a lot. Um, it's, it's mentally exhausting. And you've got to want that. Um, I think more than anything, more than your degrees, more than your experience, you just got to want it. So how do you do that? How do you keep a positive attitude when things go wrong? You know, you might, you maybe went fundraising, hit her no 10 times, or you want to hire someone to tune you down or like all these things that go wrong. How do you keep a positive attitude? I, I'm a glass half full kind of person. Um, I just always know that whatever happened, even if it was bad, it, it was supposed to happen and we're going to learn from it and we're going to move on. I think um, every adverse, uh, every adverse event has opportunity come out of it. And I've seen it. I've seen it time and time again. So you can't tell me it's not true. Um, so I think that's how. So you said there's a lot of counties you're not in. Is it like a county on your list? Like, I, I want to get this county first. Uh, I definitely, I definitely want to get out in Spokane. Okay. We used to be there. We had programs there and the funding dried up and uh, we're not there anymore. And, but I want to, I want to do the right things. I don't want to go out there and compete and try to provide the same service that our neighbors are providing. I want to fill the gaps. And right now I don't even know what those are, but now with our uh, VP of programs in place, you know, we can get out there and, and do some hunting around and find out who needs Easter seals and how can we come to the table? You have a goal in mind. Like you want to be like, by, or say like by end of this year. Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's your goal in the year. Okay. Yeah, I want my board full by the end of the year. I want to be uh, in Spokane and maybe some other counties by the end of the year. And I want to serve um, at least 25% more people. Um, yeah, but that's how we're going to move the those needle. Pretty, those are pretty big goals. How, do you, how are you going to work on that? How, how do you think you're going to achieve those? I got it. You know, I, I told everybody the other day, I want you to, even if you write on the walls, I want it physically in front of you all the time. Uh, and me too is always looking at that measure, 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 uh, look at it. Where are we? Did we go, go backwards? Are we going forwards? Uh, just keep it in front of us. So, so suppose there's a kid and they they live with their parents, right? This is totally off the wall. <laughs> Can the parent pull the kid out of Easter Seals? Sure. Okay. 
Yeah, yeah. We're, we're a service um, not unlike um, kinder care or, you know, any for-profit service okay. you would buy for your child. Okay. Um, yeah, just because you're funded with the government, you still have choice. Now, that didn't used to be the case. It used to be the government would decide where your child was served. But, uh, but now you have choice, which I think is great. Is there something out there, this may be a crazy question, there's something out there that's not a disability duty that should be, you know, like I'm making this up, like I'm right-handed and should be like being left-handed be a disability or like, you know, like, cause like, I know it's a crazy question. Like I have to imagine like for a while, like certain disabilities weren't disabilities, right? And they became disabilities over time. Like, that's true. Is there something out there like you think about well, that should be a disability? Like maybe like, of course being blind is a disability, but being nearsighted is not the, a disability, The fact right? that I'm only five feet tall, like, you know, that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, maybe that, yeah. Yeah, maybe that, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> well, I do believe in universal design. Okay. And universal design means that uh, everyone should be able to access whatever that is. Like having your cabinets lower in your house mm -hmm. so that my husband doesn't have to reach everything. Or two brushes being for both hands, stuff like that. Right, okay. right. So I think the closer we come to universal design, that the more inclusive our world's going to be. Okay, all right. Um, so far I forget, you want me to ask you about something you, you have regrets about. Yeah, and, and there's an, another thing I'd like to mention, too, if I can wedge that in. But, um, but I, do, I, have, I don't have many regrets, which is, which is good. It's amazing when you hit 60 and you don't have a lot of regrets. Um, but I do have one, and, and I think about it on Memorial Day and Veterans Day. You know, when I was in high school, I was a band geek, and I'm playing saxophone. And one day after we got off the marching band field, income all these people in uniform and they were trying to recruit us to join the air force right out of high school and uh be in the air force band and do four years and do basic training and the whole bit but otherwise just really become an exceptional musician by serving your country by playing your horn and i was this close to doing it and i didn't do it and I regret not serving our country. I regret not being that 1%. I had the opportunity. I was physically able. I didn't have any ties. Um, and I, I could have joined in a niche that not anybody, everybody could do. And I didn't pull the trigger. I mean, I would first back and say you're serving your country now by doing Easter Sale stuff, so. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And Rotary, I suppose. Yeah, Rotary too, yeah. Yeah, we got to include Rotary, yeah. Yeah. And, and then there's one other thing that I have done that I'm actually more proud of than anything else in my life. And it happened in 2018. And that is, I became a living kidney donor. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so I only have one kidney and it's still cranking, which you, is good. You, you, do you know who the person has your kidney? Did they I tell do you that? now. I do. I didn't for two years. Um, my husband needed a kidney. And so I was like, Phil, I'll solve this problem. I'll just give you my kidney. Let's just get this over with. But we weren't compatible, even though we'd been married 30 plus years, you know, we weren't compatible blood type. And so they said, you can do paired exchange where you give to some, some anonymous recipient and some anonymous donor will give his, their kidney to your husband and it'll move him up in the list so he can get one faster because you're leveraging your body part. I don't think they use those lang that language. Yeah, hopefully they don't anyway. But, uh, but that is what happened. Um, and so it, it was a process. It, it took, you know, a year and a half. But in 2018, on uh, July 18th, 2018, I gave my kidney to a lady and I didn't know who had it um, until I got a letter from her two years later. And now we have a beautiful relationship. And um, 
she's healthy. She's off dialysis. Her children have a mother. Her husband has, has a wife. And she's, she lives in Seattle and she works for UW. And, and I love her and, and it's amazing. Did, it, did anything with your own health change? Like, do you have to like cut out drinking or doing anything else? Like, you had to like, I don't know, like, I have no idea, but did, did anything change? You asked me that as I'm drinking this bourbon. Yeah, yeah. Um, you have to drink more water okay. because you want to keep that one kidney healthy. And then you, you stay away from ibuprofen, you know, the NSAIDs. Yeah. Um, stay away from those. Not supposed to have contrast dye. So if ever I had like an MRI and right. they wanted to run contrast, I need to try to tell them not to do that. Uh, otherwise, not much changes. And okay. I've become this horribly ag- obnoxious person at dinner parties now because I'm like, hey, Jason, you look pretty healthy. <laughs> Got an extra kidney? <laughs> it's once you qualify, which, you know, not everybody qualifies, but yeah. once you do, it's a pretty easy process. And it's life-changing. It's life-changing for them. It's life-changing for me. Was it um, like day, like, like same-day surgery? Yeah. Okay. No, well, no, I, I did spend the night. I spent two nights in the hospital. Okay. But it was pretty simple. It's um, most, mostly arthroscopic and then one incision. And um, I have a really high pain tolerance. So I was like, you know, no big deal. Did you get to see your kidney? I saw a video okay. of them doing it. Okay. So I saw it being pulled out of there with what looked like a pair of pliers. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, pretty strange, but incredible. Incredible. Well, obviously, if you, if you ever got kidney disease, that would be at a big risk, right? Yeah, but because I was a living kidney donor, I go to the top of the list. Oh, okay. So if I need a kidney, I'm at the top of the list to get one, which is pretty cool. And this lady, um, do you have any choice in who got your kidney? Or was just like, you just donate and they do like what they do? Person. Yeah, I had no choice. Okay. Um, physically, we have to be com- a perfect match. Like you know, blood types, compatible. all kind of stuff, and blood type, and then some. I don't even know. I gave over twenty vials of blood two or three times in this process, and I can't tell you how many gallons of urine I had to cart upstairs to these labs. It's it, they they really make sure that this is going to work. And how long was the process from the time you volunteered to actually doing the surgery? It was about a year. That long. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Not only do they have to screen me, but they have to find the right match. Okay. And at the same time, they had to, you know, Phil, my husband, they had to make sure he got the right match and it had to all be timed. We, he got his kidney three weeks before I donated mine. Was this a coincidence that other ladies was in Seattle? Yeah. That's like, that's like, I was thinking maybe like, I don't know, Denver, Colorado, you know, St. Louis, Missouri. Well, we went out of Swedish uh, medical center in Seattle. So that most people are pretty local. Phil's donor is down in um, San Francisco. So yeah, you don't know. And is there a fee you had to pay to do this? Like as a donor? Yeah. No. In fact, everything's covered for me. Okay. And for life, if I have a health condition that, that they can track as related to donating my kidney, uh, that's covered um, by my recipient's insurance. You plan to donate any other, any other organs? Not in my other kidney. <laughs> <laughs> my friend came up to me after and he said, it's really cool what you did, but don't do it again. <laughs> um, you know, I just volunteered a friend of mine who has leukemia and I said, do you need bone marrow? Cause I'll be, I'll get tested. It's I, kind I, of addictive. I heard that's pretty painful though. To get the oh, I've heard that too. I've heard that's actually really painful. Yeah. It wouldn't bother me. You have a high pain tolerance, you I say, do. so. I do. And it's addictive. Once you, once you help somebody in this way and you've changed lives and saved lives, it's like, how else can I do it? You know, bring it. Um, it's really addictive. In fact, when I was being 
going through the process of being eligible, um, there were times where Phil, Phil's health was a problem. And they're like, well, we don't know if he can get a kidney. So if he can't get a kidney, do you want to drop out and not give yours? And I was like, absolutely not. I, I'm committed to this. Yeah. Let's do it. You know, you, you really get into it. Isn't it funny how people's pain tolerance are different? Like for me, example, like I, and back then I could take a pretty good punch, right? I, you know, whatever. But if you pinch me, yeah, I'm, yeah, I can't. If you pinch me, it's like, it's like getting a knife wound, right? If you pinch me, like, what do you want me to do? Just don't pinch me no more. <laughs> Note to self, I won't pinch you, yeah. Jason. Um, it is weird how pain works. Yeah, it is weird. Yeah. Um, so is there anything else you want to talk about or anything I didn't ask you? I think that was the kidney thing was on that list for sure. But, uh, but no, I think you, you delved pretty deep, Jason. Yeah, you got a lot out of me. Yeah. Um, so back to Rodeo Club real fast. Okay. Um, do, you, do you plan on doing that like, as a lifetime member for two? You ever see yourself walking away from that? Never. 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 It has enhanced my life so much. I can't imagine my life without Rotary. As, as silly as that sounds, it's true. And so if you could break it down, like, for the base, like 100% base percentage, right? Everything you do, like, is it like, Said Easter Seal sixty percent, Rotary twenty percent, Family Time twenty percent. Like, do you have like first part? What what is a real percent, real percentage, and what do you wish the percentage was? Oh my gosh, um, time wise, my work takes up most of my time, but um, commitment and passion, they're all pretty equal. They're all pretty equal, but time-wise, you know, my job is what it is and, and it's very, it's high need. It's high need. So I'd say, you know, gosh, it's up 70, 80%. Um, what do I wish it was? No changes. Okay. I, I, you're really happy what you're doing right now. I am. I am yeah. exhausted, but I love being, being exhausted. I, is good though. I love being exhausted. Isn't that weird? Um, yeah. You know, serving in any capacity, whether it's for a paycheck or not, um, makes me a better person. And it's just, I'm addicted to it. Is there something on your bucket list that you haven't done yet? Um, I want to go to Italy. So we're, we're trying to get a trip in to Italy. I just went to Australia last year. So check that one. Um, oh, this is, I want, I'm, your, your fans aren't going to like this. You might lose, you might lose listeners. Uh, I'm a Steelers fan. Ooh, I'm a right? Cowboys fan. Oh, yeah. So, so we're enemies. We're, we're equally hated. Yeah. We're equally hated. I want to go to a Steelers game in Pittsburgh. Yes, please. I'm sure you can make that happen. I'm going to give it a shot. You just, you'll just go to a Rotary Club meeting in Pittsburgh. Okay. See? Now, now, you got, now, you're, talking. Or, now you're talking. Or, you know, meet with the Easter Seals affiliate there or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I can make it happen. So earlier, you know, we're drinking bourbon. I asked you what your favorite bourbon was, but you see you're actually a Scotch person. Can you talk about some of your favorite Scotches? Oh, I like the smoky ones, you know, the peaty ones. But I also like, you know, the, your standard Glenfiddich, Glenlevitt, 12-year, uh, single malt. It's got to be single malt. I'm not a blended gal. Okay. Yeah. How long have you been a Scotch fan? Not too long. Five years, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm also a wine drinker. Uh, Phil and I were beer drinkers when we were dating and we got pretty heavy and we're like, you know, we could save a lot of calories if we switched <laughs> to wine. 
Um, so we went from being, you know, bud people to wine people, and and now now we like some of the nicer spirits. Yeah, I don't think most people realize how big of a wine culture there is here in the state of Washington. Oh, Washington's a great state for wine. Great state. I, you know, I love, you know, the Sonoma area down in California as well, though. Yeah. yeah. It would have been very nice. Um, I don't know if there's a, I don't know how you go to Westport, Washington. Yeah. But been there. A, have you been to that winery there called the Westport Winery that's on the way? Yeah, I actually got a, an auction gift card through there and, okay. and went and had a, a wine tasting for 10 people. It was a hoot. It, to me, it's just what I first saw, like, What's the wine you're doing out here, right? Like, right, I know. It's like Green Acres. Yeah, like totally unexpected. <laughs> like, we have to stop here, you know. Yeah, yeah, pretty cool. You have a favorite wine? Like, oh, I'm a cab girl. Cab, okay. Yeah, big meaty red cab. Okay. Yeah. And you're the type of person like that has to like match your wine with a certain meal, or like like cab go with this, like something goes with this. No, no, yeah, me neither. I I've gotten to where I'll almost drink cab with cereal. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to have to try that. Get a bottle of cap, <laughs> or in the Fruit Loops. Yeah, there you go. That's going to be pretty tasty. Uh, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Um, so anything else you want to talk about that we didn't cover? Or I think we're pretty good. Okay. Um, yeah. So can you share your, your um, social media so people can reach out to you? Uh, well, it's all on our website. And our website is easterseals.com slash Washington. Okay. And then there are links to all of our social media there. Uh, but most of the handles are or Easter Seals Wa. Okay. And, and, and talking about social media, how do you make sure like Easter Seals and the Rotary Club both utilize social media channels like to kind of entice people to, you know, join your organization or like push, yeah. or to push, you know, like maybe you're doing like, maybe the camp this year, maybe has some of like film, like different TikToks or YouTube videos and stuff like that. Or maybe you live stream a Rotary Club members, Rotary Club meeting. Like, how do you do that? Well, Easter Seals is easier than Rotary because Easter Seals, I have paid employees who spend time doing this. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we've got several people that are really pushing our social media really well. Uh, Rotary is a little harder. It's an all volunteer organization. Yeah. So we have some people that are savvy, but don't have enough time. Yeah. Um, so we just do the best we can, okay. but we could always use some help. So if people see our posts, if they could like them, share them, it'd be helpful. Okay. And so before we get out of here, can you give us any last minute wisdom or advice or anything you want to talk about? Just that, my life has been so enriched through service. And I would just say uh, you should always look for, seek out those opportunities to serve and don't wait until you think you're going to have time till you retire or whatever. Seek out those opportunities now to serve because it not only benefits the people you're serving, but you grow through the process. So I'm, I'm all about service. Kathy, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. It was great. Thank you, Jason. And to our listeners, thank you. Thank you for your time as well. Remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you. And remember to be great every day.